This is episode number 159 of the Ardella Training Podcast. Hey, this is Scott Ardella, author of the new book, The Edge of Strength, now available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Ardella Training Podcast, a no-nonsense weekly fitness and performance podcast dedicated to the serious fitness enthusiast, coach, or athlete. Thanks for joining me this week. Let's get started. All right, guys, welcome to episode number 159, where we are breaking into new ground here on the show with the first live in-person interview. This is something I mentioned I'd be doing here on the Ardella Training Podcast, and this week's session is a live interview with Frank McKinney in one of the most incredible interviews I've ever done so far on the Ardella Training Podcast. I'll tell you more about that in just a minute, and then we're going to get right into the interview this week. First, just a couple of quick things here. You can still enter in the contest to win a free digital version of the Movement Principles DVD by Gray Cook and Greg Rose. I reviewed this educational product last week on episode number 158. So if you'd like to learn about this product and hear about it, go back and check out that episode. And you can win a free digital version. So not the actual DVD, but a digital download of all of the great content that comes with this DVD product and all the extra educational resources. Guys, this is a fantastic learning resource for human movement and using the FMS, the functional movement screen. And all you have to do is drop in a quick review of the Ardella Training Podcast in iTunes and then send me a screenshot. And then next week, I'm going to pick one winner. And again, this is really, really an awesome product. Another quick reminder is that my book, The Edge of Strength, is now available as a Kindle book and a paperback edition in Amazon. It's doing really well so far, and it's actually even number one in my category for hot new releases, which is very cool, and I'm very honored. If you've read the book, please take a minute and leave a review in Amazon, as the reviews are very important to help others learn about the book. And it means a lot to me, and I'd be very, very appreciative. I have to tell you that I actually leave reviews all the time in Amazon myself for the great books that I read. It's very easy to do, and it really helps the author, and getting the word out there. All right, so let me tell you about this week's interview. Well, this interview, as I mentioned, is the first live interview. So I sat down with Frank in his office, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. And, uh, you know, we did this live interview session. Most of my interviews are over the computer, over Skype, and I really wanted to start moving into doing live interview sessions. And as you're going to see during the the first half of the year, uh, a lot of live sessions are going to be coming up. But uh, I'm also going to be doing the traditional interviews as well. So they're not all going to be live. It'll be a combination of live and then the, the traditional interviews that we've always done here on the podcast. Now, let me tell you about Frank. And there's a story here. So Frank McKinney is a author. He is the author of a great book called Make It Big. This is a book that came out some time ago. It's been very impactful for many people. Frank is a real estate mega investor, a real estate artist. He's a five-time international best-selling author, a philanthropist, a ultra-marathon runner, a actor, and a visionary, and a, a, just a great person. I, I'm telling you, he's just an amazing uh, person that I've, that I've met, and uh, I'm so excited to have him be the first guest here on the podcast. So I heard Frank speak at a local real estate event many years ago down here in South Florida when I had some interest in real estate. Honestly, real estate is not for me. I I learned that uh, a while ago, but at the time I was interested in real estate investing. 
And I was so inspired by Frank's talk about life and how he achieved the level of success that he's had that I decided to reach out to Frank later. Now, if you're familiar with fitness professional Craig Ballantyne, for example, he constantly references Frank's book, Make It Big, as a source of wisdom and insight for success in anything. This is not a real estate book. It's a book about life success. And Frank is a brilliant businessman, and I ultimately ended up seeking him out for some advice and guidance on things that I was working on, and specifically my book project, which took many years to come to completion. You're going to hear some of that story in the interview, and it actually came up as we were discussing things. So Frank has been really a, a mentor and a coach, uh, even though they're different things, in my own ventures. And he's just, a, again, a, a great man, as you're going to hear about. And uh, he's really helped me a lot, and it's a great honor to have him be the first guest here on the show. Now, this interview actually comes from his business office, which is a treehouse office overlooking the Atlantic Ocean in Delray Beach, Florida. And it was, a, it was a great day, the day that we did the interview, a nice ocean breeze, the windows were open, and we were uh, overlooking the ocean. It was just amazing. And we discuss a lot in this interview session. It's very different, as you're going to hear. Now, I can tell you that you will take away a lot of great information to follow through with in this interview. This is a game changer for all of us. And the concepts are really applicable to all areas of life. So whether it's training, nutrition, um, you know, your business, anything, these are really some success secrets, so to speak, that are discussed in this interview session. And again, I think this uh, interview is really valuable for anybody, no matter what your background is or where you are, I think you're going to get uh, tremendous value out of this interview session. And I recently had some one-on-one -on -one calls with some of the subscribers at Ardell Training, and some of the great feedback that I got was about what people really liked about the Ardell Training podcast. And some of the feedback was that they liked the variety of content here on the show. Well, this interview definitely fits the description of variety. So I know you'll love this session. And we talked about uh, just so many unique concepts. And then Frank is a ultra marathon runner. So he talked about uh, his experience with the ultra marathon uh, running experience, which is really, really amazing stuff. But so many other great things in this uh, information packed session. So guys, let's get to it. Let's jump into the interview. Enjoy it. And I'll see you uh, at the end and we'll wrap things up. All right, guys, I am live here in Delray Beach, and I am in the infamous tree house office of Frank McKinney. Frank is a author, entrepreneur, philanthropist, real estate investor, and endurance athlete. And Frank has actually been a huge role model for me, a huge mentor, and um, he's a very successful person. I can't say what a great person uh, Frank McKinney is and all the great things that he's done. So I'm so excited to bring you this interview. I know it's going to be uh, very valuable for you. So Frank, first of all, thank you for being here. Um, I, should, I should say thank you for letting me come in here to your office here and uh, be the very first live interview here on the podcast. I think everybody listening, you, you're wondering, what do you mean he's in a treehouse? Indeed, we are in Delray <laughs> Beach 
It's too bad this is just a podcast, not a video cast, because right behind me is the, we're 22 feet above the Atlantic Ocean, and indeed we're we're in a 200 square foot uh, tree house where I've got a bathroom, a sink, a shower. It's where I wrote all five of my books. It's where I designed the houses that we built on speculation, yeah. and it's also where I strategize and plan for my my ultra marathon races. So, so how much time do you spend in here each day? I mean, is this where you spend the majority of your day uh, doing creative work and business deals and things like that? You know, it's creativity and ingenuity that's rewarded in business today, Scott. And it doesn't matter what business we're in. We need to be creative and ingenious. And you need to find a place that draws that out of you. And to me, for me, I hadn't written a book until I built this treehouse. I've been in this treehouse for 14 years, and my book came out 14 years ago, a couple of days ago, my first book. So this is my office. I mean, this isn't a playhouse. This isn't a place where I come to you know get away from my wife and family. This I closed my main office two years ago because I was never going there. I, I commute to work across a 40-foot suspension bridge. You know, I don't get in my car and drive. And, and this is where the magic happens. And, and I don't mind not – I mean, everybody that works for me works from home. I don't mind not being surrounded by a lot of chatter and, you know, distractive noise. And, and I find a tremendous amount of inspiration working from up here. Yeah. What is it that uh, really gets your creativity going in here? Yeah, I think, I think certainly the fact it has 12 windows, it looks out over the ocean. We're surrounded by some of these trees are over 100 years old as you look out the, one of the 12 windows. I love that, you know, the natural light that comes through the trees. The serenity, you know, being away from a hustle and bustle of a primary office, a main office, which I had for years. Yeah, yeah. Close enough to home where, you know, I don't come to work in my pajamas. I still get dressed for work every day. You know, some people <laughs> right. think, oh, Frank, you'd be crazy. You roll out of bed. No, yeah. I get dressed for work. I come in here. I come here to work. I'll go home and grab, a, you know, lunch or something. Right. But just the, you know, that, that oceanscape that's right behind you there changes yeah. every day. Mountains are beautiful. The beach, you know, is beautiful. But when you watch the ocean change every day. Right, right. It really just induces creativity for me. Absolutely. So the reason I wanted you to come on the show is, again, you've been a huge Role model for me personally. You've helped me in a lot of ways, and we met a couple of years ago. And uh, but your book, Make It Big, has had such an impact on so many people. So I wonder if you could talk about the book, why you wrote it. Uh, you know, your background obviously is is real estate. But the principles in this book apply to anything in life. And that's why, you know, so many fitness professionals have gravitated to the book and have, have talked about the book. Well, Make It Big, it was my first book, and it, and it came out 14 years ago, which I can't believe has been 14 years. It still sits on the bestseller list, and we've sold over, I think, almost 220,000 copies now, which is, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, it, it is a philosophical approach to living a balanced life, to living a, a, an, ext- an extremely successful life with real estate anecdotes sprinkled throughout. So it's not a real estate book, of course. You've read it. Right, right. And, I, you know, it, it's ahead of its time in the sense that there's 49 chapters. Each chapter is only six to eight pages long. You know, that's how books are written today. But back yeah. 14 years ago, they were long 500-page books. And I think that appeals to people. So you don't have to go right from chapter one to chapter 49. You can read chapter 20 on how to exercise your risk threshold and then bounce back on how to you know, share your blessings with those less fortunate in the spiritual chapter, in the spiritual part of the book. But my, you know, my, my story is, is pretty simple. I mean, I, you know, I came to Florida with a $50 bill and no benefit of, of formal education. I never went to college and I left high school with a 1.8 grade point average. Not many 18-year-olds have more than 50 bucks in their pocket. That's not you know, sensational. Oh, you only have 50 bucks. It's really what did you do from that point and how did you get to become successful and really make it big? I, used to, I was asked to give talks early in my, my career as I became successful, and I would carry around tips, things that I would do. 
yeah. in order to be successful. And it was on one sheet of paper, and there were 50 of them. And, and I would carry around. I'd say, okay, if okay. I'm talking to, to a young group of, uh, let's say, college-age students, I'm going to grab something that I think will apply to them. If I'm talking to a business roundtable, I'm going to apply some success principles that apply to them or use success principles that apply to them, real estate people. And I finally said, let's just take all those and turn them into a book. Right, right. And, uh, and, and really, you know, it, it is how to the, the title of the book, Make It Big, How to Make It Big in Your Chosen Field, Yeah. 49 Little Tidbits, Secrets to Building That Life of Extreme Success That We All Want. Do you have any idea as far as how far-reaching the book has had uh, impact on other people in different areas? So I already mentioned that there are certain fitness professionals that I know that have, you know, made statements about your book and how it's had such an impact on them. What do you know about the different people and the impact the book has had in their lives. If the book has been read by a hundred people, let's say, I, I think twenty of them are real estate people. You know, eighty of them <laughs> are, are other fields. Right. It's been translated yeah. into I think seven different languages now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really I, I give it to people who are. I mean, we all can be young at heart, but I like giving it to people who are just kind of getting started or wanting to restart themselves. Right. I give it right. to a lot of, or I suggest it to a lot of younger readers, thirty, forty year old readers that are kind of getting started. So it's, it is interesting to see when I first wrote it, I I was asked by my my publisher to write a book on real estate. And I thought, well, you can't succeed at, you know, in the business of life, really the business we're all in without yeah. these principles in here. It just so happens that I build beautiful houses on speculation and sell them for multiple millions of dollars on the ocean. That is, that is my stock and trade. That's my <laughs> widget, right? but it doesn't matter what my widget is. You know, that's why these success principles apply to, to everybody in every field. Right. Right. Talk a little bit about the the book writing process. And I've actually asked other guests on the show about that that have written books. What was the process like for you? How long did it take, and, and how did you get it done? It's evolved because I've written five of them now. You know, yeah. The way that we write our first book is very different than the way that I wrote my fifth book. The first book, you know, you're told by a group of friends or people who you influence, Scott, you ought to write a book. Well, first of all, everybody listening to this podcast has a book inside of them, no doubt. And you need to, because the print-on-demand availability today, if you wanted to write a book and print one copy for your coffee room table, <laughs> right. you should do it for your own edification. You should do that for your own satisfaction. Yeah. Whether yeah. or not you sell a bunch, it's very hard to make money in publishing, let me tell you. And I'm not in it for the money. But but having that, that very first book, it took me... It took me three years from start to finish, and I'm sure your story is very yeah. similar, <laughs> right. from the time I decided I needed to write this book before it ever got published. It was rejected by 18 agents and 22 publishers before the 23rd publisher finally said yes. So you have to be – now, today you don't necessarily need an agent. Right. You can right. go right it's on Amazon and, yep. and do it differently. Um, but the, the, the publishing you – you have to consider your book – is a business. The four corners of your new book, The Edge of Strength. It, oh, yeah, it's a book. Of course, it's got a beautiful cover, and it's got 30 years of, of your unconventional wisdom that you've learned over your career. But you know what? This is a four-cornered business. It's also an <laughs> right. oversized business card. So the, the business of publishing, you need to learn how this works before you, you get into it. And knowing that you, you, you're not going to retire unless you hit the Powerball, you know, you're not going to retire on what this book does. You're going to use this as your calling card. If you look up the definition of author in the, in, the, in the dictionary, it states that you are an authority 
on something. Well, you certainly are with the 30 years of experience that you have, and I am as well with the real estate experience and being a successful entrepreneur. Sure. People want to read. They, they, I, I personally want to read from somebody who, ha- who walks the talk. I don't want to just read a motivational book by somebody who hasn't done what they profess you or I can do. Right. I want to see right. that they've done it. Yes, absolutely. Very important. So you came up with these 49 uh, principles, life lessons. I wanted to ask you this. Has anything changed since the time that you wrote the book? Do, uh, do, do, these, do all of these principles still apply? I'll tell you what's changed is I took these principles for granted. This Again, I'm 52 years old. So this book came out in my late – means I was starting to write this at 35. Right? Yeah, it took me three yeah. years to write. came out at 38. I'm, you know, plus 14 is 52. I took a lot of the principles – uh, in this book, in the, in the 49 chapters, kind of for granted, because this is this is how I had lived my life to get to that point of being successful. I go back and reread my book every two years okay. to make sure I'm connected with that stage of my life. I don't want to, of course, I don't live in the past, <laughs> right? But I want to stay connected to that ambition and that drive that I had that brought me to the point at age 35 to be able to re- write a book and have the book bought by a major publishing house. I also have this book on on audio. Oops, sorry about that. That's okay. I've got this book on audio, and I will listen. I listen. I haven't listened to it that often. I listened to the first time in five years. I recorded the audio version right here where we're sitting in my treehouse. I put at the time my daughter was much younger. I put a doll, her one of her little you know play doll baby dolls, in the chair that you're sitting in, and I imagined that I was talking to you, the listener, not a book on tape typically that you would get, which is kind of like a bedtime story. The guy's sitting there reading verbatim. I free associated every single chapter in this book using the book as a guide but then recording it into equipment like you've got here and that and it's funny it keeps people you know lively but yet I'm relating to the to the uh, you know to each principle that's in the book listen su- success breeds complacency and yeah. it, 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 and and then also breeds you can systemize a lot of your success a lot of my success is now systemized when you can systemize the approach to business in other words you know I do a lot of thinking with regard to what I do for a living with regard to what I do on our charity you know we're building our 23rd village in Haiti now in the last 13 years that's yeah. on a system. I don't, I don't have <laughs> right. to think too much. Sure, the, the sure. more I can, and I'm a creative. I'm not a systems-driven person. But the more I can systemize, I mean, I don't have to think about it anymore. It creates more room for creativity. Yeah. yeah. That becomes that. That's an upward spiral. So as you get more successful, and a little bit older, you you don't have to think as much as you did to drive these forty-nine s- secrets to the top. You know, of the cream rises to the top, to the top of my consciousness. So that's why I go back and reconnect. Right. Because I don't want to take. I none of these have been mastered. <laughs> right. They right. continue to be applied. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you. You just mentioned systems, and I'm wondering, do you think that's one of the keys to success in life today? Is having systems for. Anything you do? I mean, you could, I'm just thinking you'd apply that to, to fitness, nutrition, business, anything. I think you know, the key, the key, one of the keys to succeeding is you – most people consider themselves you know, either a right brain or a left brain driven individual, meaning you are a numbers person, you're statistical, you're analytical, or you're a creative artist, art, artistic. You have to be both. And, oh, I'm not, Frank. I I just don't know math, and I just don't know statistics. Or, Frank, I'm really good at that. I just, you know, 
I, I'm not. You know what? People think I'm some. You know, by the way that I look or the way that I dress, and I'm some art. I'm a businessman first, a, <laughs> a, an artist, a distant second. Why? Because I don't want to be a starving artist. Yeah. Most artists starve on right. their creativity, and I'm the Mister. You know, I've got all these ideas. Right. I'm an idea right. person. Ideas are worthless if you yeah. don't implement them. Yeah. I, oftentimes, yeah. I'll get asked, That's Frank, awesome. can you take me to? I'd like to take you to coffee to have a coffee so I can share an idea with you. Will you come? The answer is always no. It's always the same. No. A, I don't, I don't drink coffee. But B, I will listen to you when you can tell me right now an idea that you came up with, that you implemented, you brought full circle to fruition, succeed or fail, tell me one. Yeah. And if you can't tell me one, I don't want to hear about some harebrained idea that you haven't. If, right. you, if you've had right. some success, meaning yeah. I'm a firm believer and I admire, I should say, and what I call an executioner. Yes. An action taker. Yeah. But – you can take action, but not close the loop. Okay. I want to okay. see somebody execute fully on whatever it is. Like you set out, you sat in this treehouse how many years ago? Three. Yeah. And said, we agreed that you needed a calling card. You were, you were 30 years <laughs> right. into this. You needed a book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here I'm, I mean, it's not TV. It's too bad. You, you, I'm holding it in my hand. So you, you started, we're going to talk about how to become an executioner. You started the process. And you got all the way around and got over all the hurdles associated with writing this book, and you closed the loop. Very few people yeah. do that. Yeah. They're dreamers. Dreams are stuff we have when we're asleep. I'm not a dreamer. I'm a reality person. I take some, right. some, some right. great creative idea, it's not a dream, and bring it to a reality. You, you close the loop. You are what's called an executioner. There's very few of us in the world. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not. You'll, you'll start something. You'll get very excited about it. And because of the 140 Twitter, you know, character mentality we live with nowadays, our attention deficit, not disorder, it's a, a, a de attention deficit um, disaster is really what it is. <laughs> we don't focus until the end. We don't see things through. Yeah. So you, you've got a bunch of different, you know, strength training techniques. And somebody could start one of them and feel a little sore or whatever and say, oh, I'm going to try the newest one, the newest, you know, kettlebell. Kettlebell. Kettlebell, kettlebell. fad. No, stick with it. Become an expert at one thing. Close the loop on one thing. What that does is it builds confidence. Right, right. And then we're able to take on something a little bit bigger. Listen, to relate, uh, my first house that I did was a $50,000 fixer-upper. It was a crack house, two-bedroom, one-bath, 620 square feet. Not much bigger than this tree house. We, I closed the loop on that. And I did hundreds of little houses where we made a $7,000 profit on our first one. By the last one, we were making about $25,000 profit on a $100,000 house. It's a good profit. Then eventually I said, that's, that's not enough. It was plenty of money. It yeah. just wasn't enough challenge. I've built houses worth $50 million and sold them without a buyer in mind. 30,000 square feet with 18 bedrooms, 22 bathrooms, and a 24-car garage. I started with a $50,000 fixer-upper. So if I hadn't had success at that smaller entry-level home for five years, you know, in, in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, I think it's Blink. He says it takes 10,000 years to become an expert at anything. 10,000 10, hours. 10,000 years would be too much. 10,000 <laughs> 10, hours to become an expert at anything. Well, yeah. you know what? I look back at my early career. 10,000 hours on a, on a full-time basis is five years. Right. right. Five years later, I became an expert at real estate, and we started to up the ante when it came to our price point. So I, if I hadn't had those successes, meaning closing the loop, taking my lunch pail to work, showing up day in and day out, there never would have been – if there wasn't a $50,000 closed loop, there never would have been a $50 million spec home. Right, right. That really blows my mind what you were saying here about closing the loop and being a executioner. Is that yeah, what you call yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Because, and I was going to tell you this offline, but, you know, one reason, so we met a few years ago, but we haven't talked in a couple of years, and I didn't want to make contact to you until I finished this book. Like, I, I didn't feel like I had the right to reach out to you until I finished this book, because we talked about it. We talked about writing this book, and... Um, you know, I won't go into the reasons here, but it was definitely a challenge. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, and I, I'm going to say right here, I've already talked about this on my show, that this is not the only book for me, and I would expect the second book now to be a heck of a lot faster. But uh, Well, let me, there's a lesson for people to learn. Don't gloss over what you just said. He, he, yeah. Scott just said he didn't want to talk to me until he had closed the loop on something that he, we had talked about him doing. Yep. So, of course, he's become an executioner. That's called self-accountability, not relying on somebody else. Like he could have bugged me and said, Frank, I'm having trouble and, you know, calling me up and saying all these horror stories and sob stories. I would have given him a little help uh, for a little while, but eventually I would have said, Scott, you got to do this on your own. And by him breaking through all the barriers and all the impediments to him bringing this book to print, he taught himself that self-reliability, accountability, a valuable, valuable lesson. And I admire him for not doing that. Another very quick story. There was a, a guy who called me and said, Frank, I, I admire what you do with your charity. I want to give a house away to a returning veteran from Iraq. He was a real estate guy, pretty successful, wanted to start a charity. I told him how to do it. And, and he said, well, you know what? Uh, I appreciate that. I will call you when I've done it. And it, it took him two and a half years and, you know, to raise the money and get this charity. And he did it. He gave a house away. I saw it on the news. And he called me. He sent me the clip. He says, yeah. Frank, I want you to know I closed the loop on it. That guy now sits on our board of directors for our charity because I just appreciate the fact he didn't bug me. He, you know, he did what he said he was going to do, and he did it with his own, uh, his own accountability. But, but you don't like the, the term action taker because – you're saying that people can take action, but oh, they, yeah. they don't they don't finish. Right. So there's there's four stages to becoming an executioner. First of all, executioner. We know what it, what it means to execute on something, but but look up the you know the old medieval executioner. I mean, an executioner with that 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 sword or whatever. There was no partially doing his job, right? right. He did his job. Period. He yeah. started halfway. He chopped your head off or whatever his job was. He was to execute you. And I gave a I gave a, a seminar called the Make It Big Event. And I used the image of an executioner, you know, holding a sword over the, your head. And it was a little graphic. It wasn't showing anybody's head getting chopped off or anything. But when, when, when you think about right now, if, if Scott had left my treehouse three years ago excited about the book, okay, so you, you take a point on a piece of paper at the very top of a circle. We're going to draw a circle. You're going to go to the 25% mark, the, the quarter mark. You can get excitement. Action can take you to 25% yeah. just with inertia. Right. Just just the flow of energy. Oh, this is so exciting. I see it in real estate all the time. And then <laughs> and then you start to get this excitement starts to wear off. You know, the blush starts to come off the rose, the honeymoon's over, and we come down to the fifty percent mark, which is the drudgery. That's me basically in my field going to a job site and the water hasn't been turned on and somebody used the toilet and went number two in it. So guess who's got to clean it? And why am I clean? I mean, I've already made yeah. money. I'm cleaning poop out of a toilet that somebody crapped in. I hate this business. I want to get out of it. I want to do something else. This is, I mean, you know, it's the it's, it's the lunch pail approach chapter and make it big, which is a very important one. You you know yeah. that one. Right, Just right. take that lunch right. pail approach. At fifty percent, people bail on things. So the the inertia's worn off. The excitement's worn off. Now we're down into the drudgery of the day to day living of of whatever your business is. I quit. I want to do something else. Okay, well, you're going to push through that. No, you're not going to quit. Then you get to the 75% mark. You can kind of almost see the finish line. 
not a big majority, but about 10 to 15% of people that start something and get past the excitement, get past the drudgery, that 50% mark, and get to the 75% mark, right. 10 to 15% quit because they have a fear of success. They become too involved and enamored with the process and not with the result. What am I going to do with myself when this book comes out? Right. I mean, right. I, I have, I've, I've invested three years. I don't have nothing to do. I don't know. What, no, we're, we are here to execute on getting this book out or whatever your business is, whatever you're, you know, what you want to sell. Don't quit because you subconsciously fear succeeding. It's not a big percentage of people, as I said, but there are people that do it. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. You get past that, and you start to say, okay, my gosh, I'm here to execute. I'm going to get to that finish line, and I'm going to finish. But there's so many people. Just by taking action, unimpressive. I mean, that's it's the a, first step. That's a great uh, analogy and, and visual. I hope that people can understand that whole storyline behind what you just it, 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 explained. You know, so, so the first, if you want to, like, a, a, a species to relate to. If you get to 25%, you're a flea. And what does a flea do? He hops from one thing to the next. He hops from, <laughs> so you hop from in real estate, you're a short seller, a wholesaler, a retailer, a bank repo. I mean, all these different ways to make money. You never become an expert. You get to 50% and you want to quit, you're a half asser. That's what you are. You got yeah. halfway, you're a freaking half asser. Get off it, keep it, but push through, you know, push through the, t- the, the, the 12th rep on a, you know, when you're doing your kettlebells or what have you, push through. If you're a 75 percenter, you are a um, yeah. You just have that fear of success. I forget what I call it. Then. So, so this is a perfect lead into a question I wanted to ask you, and it's about the word success. So, there's a lot of uh, words in in fitness and in business and in life that are very uh, they're commonly used terms, but what do they really mean? So, for you, what defines success? How do you, Frank? McKinney define success. Here's here's the I'm a simpleton, okay? I'm a 1.8 grade point average out of high school guy, no college education. I do better by keeping things really simple. Yep. Success cannot be bifurcated into two camps, success in business and success at home. You know, oh, it's only business. That's why I had to treat you like that. I don't go for it. I, there's one form of success, and that's success in the business of life, and we're all in that business. So I'm a firm believer that each one of us has a professional highest calling, what you're put on this earth to do. You being a, a strength training coach and now an author, I'm my professional highest calling is uh, building beautiful houses on the ocean on speculation. We all have a spiritual highest calling as well. And, and most of us spend our entire lives pursuing our professional highest calling to the detriment of or not even believing in that we have a spiritual highest calling. When you can bring those two together – to me, that that defines success. So for me, I'm yes, I'm able to build these multi-million dollar homes and sell them to the ultra wealthy that actually don't even need another house. But take the proceeds and then build these self-sufficient villages in Haiti, which is the poorest country in, in the world right now. Twenty-three self-sufficient villages. We provide housing. We have provided housing to ten thousand four hundred plus people in the last thirteen years. That didn't have it, or they had mud huts for it. So. It's related, right? I'm in the housing business. I'm like Robin Hood, providing to the to the rich. I'm not stealing from them, but I'm using the proceeds and I'm building these villages for the poor. To me, that defines that's the definition of success. Bringing together your professional highest calling, what God put you on the earth to do to put food on your table and money in your pocket with your spiritual highest calling, what God put you on the earth to do for others that are less fortunate than you. One thing you talk about in your book is trying to discover that as early as possible. Is there a incident where you think that that happened for you, where you realized what you were supposed to do? There, it wasn't a that I think happened. I know when I had my, 
you know, one of my book, my other books is t- it's a spiritual book called The Tap, and it's a sim. There's no subtitle. It's just a, it just says The Tap. Yeah, and it is a. And you don't have to be religious, and don't let the fact that I am, you know, turn you off. There's a great passage in the Bible that happens to be a wonderful life mantra, and in and, and paraphrase, it says, "To whom much is entrusted, much is expected." And I had experienced a, a, a tremendously rapid rate of ascent when it came to my my financial success and selling houses from you know going from fifty thousand to the point where we sold the most expensive spec home in Palm Beach County back in the late nineties for twelve million dollars. And a spec home for those of you who are listening are a house built without a buyer. So I'm not building for somebody. I'm building it like the field of dreams, hoping they will come. Right. We sold it. There was an article in the newspaper about the most expensive spec house in, in Palm Beach County, $12 million. Oh, of course, most of you listening have been in the newspaper before. I go to grab the newspaper to see if my hair is right, my clothes right, and the, pic- the house is pictured right. But on the left side of the paper was a picture of a homeless man being fed out of the back of a beat-up old van who was living underneath the overpass. And if I don't put a blow dryer to my hair, you know, and shave, which I'm not shaved today, but I can look like a homeless person pretty easy, you know? And a hair in a rat's nest, and I thought, oh, there but for the grace of God go I. Why? And I had a lot of trouble growing up. I was in juvenile halls you know, okay. and all that, and I, I, I really had a, a very troubled upbringing that I brought on myself. I had great parents. I was just a, a, you know, a bad boy, misbehaving. Why, did he, why is he on the left side, side of the page of the paper, which I could have easily been on? I mean, I was in juvenile detention a bunch of times. Right. Yet he's there, and I'm on the right-hand side of the newspaper. I had to figure out what you know. Why is that? What what what? I took a right turn. He took a left turn. And this guy looked just like me. And I went. And I started serving meals out of the back of that same van as a volunteer at what was called the Caring Kitchen. The name of our charity is the Caring House because it right. affected me so much. And and so that, to me, that was what I would call an epiphanous, like an epiphany, an epiphanous tap moment where God came down, tapped me on the shoulder, and said, "Frank, you need to find out the answer." And and while by the way, while I was on the right hand side of the paper, I was pretty miserable. I don't tell a lot of people that, but I was garage full of cars, closet full of clothes, pantry full of food, miserable. Yeah. Why? I was. It was a shallow, materialistic, consumer-driven existence. And when I realized I could actually take what this gift that God had given me to build these houses on speculation and make money with them, take some of the proceeds and donors' proceeds too, and and provide housing for at the time domestic homeless people. And then we moved over to Haiti because there's no social service nets to catch the indigent over there. But that, to me, was a huge turning point in my life, reading that one article. And the, my book, The Tap, it teaches you how to look out for and be aware of life's great tap moments. Did I say tap? T-A-P. When God comes down, taps you on the shoulder, calls you to more. You, you, first of all, when we feel that for the first time, it's usually an annoyance, like a, like a fly landing on our shoulder. We, we brush it off. I don't have time for this right now. But when we learn to sensitize, sensitize ourselves to life's great tap moments, and then, Scott, act on them, not just recognize them, but act on them like I did. I just went and started to volunteer as a, you know, serving meals to the homeless. If I hadn't acted on that, there would be no 23 villages in Haiti if I hadn't acted on that one simple tap moment back in the late 90s. So that single thing led to what you do with your Haiti projects. Yes. Really. But it really, it, that's oversimplifying it. It led to joy. Yeah. I mean, I was able to hop over happiness. Not that I'm happy or joyous every day, but it gave my life a lot more purpose when I was able to bring together a, a professional gift with a spiritual gift. What uh, what still drives you today? What what really keeps you going? Is it 
what you just explained and your, your missions with with Haiti and I think that what's driving me now as I'm getting much older is the, uh, the, just the process of evolution, life's evolution. You know, I, I would think that years ago, not long ago, it was how big the house could be, how many bathrooms, how many bedrooms. You know, it will get into my hobby. How far can I run? Uh, how many books can I publish in different genres? Then, then yes, how many villages could we build? A lot of the stuff I'm referencing now is kind of on autopilot. It's more systemized. So I'm actually getting back into – I've been out of the real estate business for a few years. I was, I was thinking about even being done completely. You know, oh. I'll be done, and I'm, I like the books, and I do a lot of speaking and traveling. and you know, But I, I'm actually coming out with – and I, I can't talk about it here, but I'm completely rebranding myself. I'm coming out with a concept that will – for the high-end market that has never, ever been done before, people will be shocked when we announce this, this new concept. If you go to my, web, my, my Facebook page, you, my web page, it leads with this kind of fill-in-the-blank, what is it? We're coming early 2016, Frank McKinney unveils the blank, blank, a bold, revolutionary new concept in high -end real, luxury high-end real estate. So the, you know, that, that process of actually remaking myself when I thought I might be done. And I was happy to be done because I love what we're doing in Haiti. You know, so that evolution, that evo when an evolutionary process can become revolutionary, it's when life's really exciting. And, and it's not that life's always exciting for me. As you get older, you'll realize there's a saying with quotes around it, ah, like a sigh, ah, so few first left in life. And that's true. When you've done a lot of things, it's hard to come across first that are going to propel you right, and, and, right. and motivate you and excite you. And for me, the remaking of myself, the evolution of myself is pretty exciting. Well, how do you do that on a personal level? So how do you, you talk about evolution and, you know, we talk a lot about on the show, you know, uh, developing yourself and you know, mentally, physically, um, you know, just striving to be a little bit better tomorrow than you were today. How, how do you do that? And are there maybe daily success kind of practices or habits that you have that... Well, what I, yeah, I think you need to... But for me, this is the first time I've actually... I don't think many people are at the stage where you're actually going to rebrand yourself. I mean, that's basically a, a reinvention. That's right. not necessary right. right now. We're not talking about that. that yeah. That's just a personal thing I'm doing. The Make It Big book and those 49 short chapters and philosophies that I live by, these are things that, that do exactly what you're saying. And, and a simple one, a simple, you know, just picking out one of the 49 would be risk. You know, there's a lot smarter people than me listening to this podcast, a lot more educated people, people that probably have more money than me that will not go anywhere near as far as I've gone because they're aversion to risk. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. And so, so I've conditioned myself to see, first of all, let's just back up. When you think about risking, risk is always, I can't think of when it's not, but I will say almost always associated with a big change or challenge in your life. Right. Okay, so I want to risk. What's the next four-letter word that appears almost simultaneously then with the thought, not with the action, but the thought of taking a risk? Failure. Fear. Fear. Okay. Fear. Fear, the four-letter word. Right. So when we feel fear and fear of failure or right. fear of all these things, fear stops people from taking a risk and that risk being associated with a big change or challenge. So for me, people say, okay, so just think about that, right? We're building a, a $10 million house without a buyer. I have no partners, me, the bank, and the IRS. I don't know when it's going to sell. I don't know if I'm going to get paid this year. I don't know if I'm going to eat this year. Or am I going to be dumpster diving for food? That's how I've existed for 25 years. So for 
I, I, I take what's perceived as being huge risks. You better believe I'm afraid every day when I take on risk. I, I have not, I, I, I advise those not to become immune from risk because in my book, I talk about the risk continuum, you know, of straight line yes. and one end is a daredevil, the other one's the phobic. When you think about taking a risk and you allow, f- so, so fear then is the impediment. I actually say, okay, I'm feeling the sensation of fear and I'm welcoming it. It doesn't mean I'm going to do everything I set out to risk. Some of the best deals I've done are the ones I've walked away from. But it, I'm not going to let fear be the thing that stops me from doing a deal or, or pursuing something that's very challenging. I have learned to condition my response to fear to kind of open the synapses and open the receptors to say, okay, this has got my attention now. This means there is a big change or challenge on the horizon. Let's investigate a little further, and let's not let fear be the thing that stops me. It could be common sense. It could be lack of fun. It could be something, but not fear. And that's that's by exercising your risk threshold, you know, your risk tolerance for fear, like a muscle, just like you do in your book. You, you exercise that risk tolerance like a muscle, just like any other muscle in the body. It will become stronger, and it will be able to withstand greater pressure. So what's a bigger risk, a $50,000 house? Or a $50 million mansion? The answer is the $50,000 house because I was terrified to come off my 9 to 5 to do that first project. Right. Now I'm conditioned to do it. I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid that it's going to fail. Yeah. You know, I still have fear, but I, I don't, I embrace it. I like it. So I was going to ask you about uh, stress and how you handle stress with, with risk. But it sounds like it's it sounds like you just answered that with conditioning. The more you do it and the more you exercise that conditioning, you're you're not as stressed if you're I'm still stressed but I mean actual physical conditioning is critical to the alleviation of stress on 100%. So I'm not as you know into the stuff that you teach in your book and you know you, we'll get into my hobby, my running hobby in a second, but I have a very simple approach to how I've alleviated my stress. Yes, I mean there was a time in 2009, 2010 when the market was imploding. I mean we're paying, I forget what it was, fifteen thousand dollars a day in interest, and that thing's just sitting there, not getting sold every day. I go to sleep, I'm fifteen thousand dollars, you know, poorer. And and this one house took us over a year to sell. So do the math. I mean it's millions of dollars. Um, I, for, I mean even when I was a tennis pro, I had this. Or maybe my mid twenties, I started six or six hundred before six a.m. And that was six miles run, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And this is not when I'm training for a race or anything. This is just like off season stuff. Right. Six miles run or six hundred reps, you know, broken body part, broken into different body parts before six a.m. six days a week. Six or six hundred, six days a week. Yeah. Wow. But no, there's four sixes. Six four, okay. or six hundred. Right. Before 6 a.m., six days a week. Gotcha. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I get up at 4.30 every day, yeah. except Sunday I sleep until 6.15 because I go to church at 7. Right. And that simple disciplinary practice has helped me alleviate and be creative. I mean, when I'm out there running at, you know, now I, my training runs when I'm training for a race are much longer, but a six-mile run, I'm actually just, just you know, here we are in January. I ran my fastest six-mile time three weeks ago that I've run in 10 years. Wow. 
Because I try a spreadsheet. I'm anal that way. I have a spreadsheet for these (laughs) off-season six-mile runs. I've got 2,000 of them I keep track of. 2,000 since I've lived in this house. Wow. Wow. And, yeah, and and, and I I, I, I cranked out like a 44-minute six-mile run. I look back, I'd go all the way back to 05 the last time I ran 44 minutes, you know. What do you attribute that to? Anything? I'm much lighter than I was before. I mean, you lose about a a minute per mile per 10 pounds, eight to 10 pounds. And I'm, I'm, I'm much lighter. I'm on a, like a a two out of three meals, a liquid diet. I go to an anti-aging clinic. Um, I'm on a a lot of, you know, vitamins and and different supplements and I'm much leaner now. I, I just learned so much about the nutrition side of my sport of choice, which, you know, is ultra marathon running, which is a, a grueling sport. So, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I mean, every now and then I'll pop one of these things out. And that's at 4.35 in the morning. I haven't even properly warmed up. You know, the body would be – if I ran that at 11 on a cool day, I would I would run even faster. Right, right. So are you training for a race right I'm, now? I'm off season right now. I um, No, I'm, I'm doing my six-mile stuff. Okay. You know, just off. It's kind of nice. <laughs> All right. Let, let's transition into the Badwater Ultramarathon. So um, I definitely wanted to ask you about that. First of all, explain what it is for people that don't know. So in a, in a quick nutshell, the Badwater Ultra Marathon, according to the National Geographic, is the tough foot, toughest foot race in the world. It's not my claim. It's National Geographic's claim. And they rank them all, and, and there are some tough ones in there. The um, one in Colorado, the uh, Leadville 100 is tough. There's one in the Sahara. Badwater is the toughest. Is run in the Death Valley Desert in July where the daytime temperatures are 125 degrees, the pavement temperature is 200 degrees, the races run on the pavement. It starts at the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere at 282 feet below sea level, i.e. bad water. That's the start line. And it's run on the pavement over three mountain ranges. So you're going from below sea level to a mile up to back down to close to sea level to 6,000 feet up, down to 2,000 feet, and then you finish it at 9,000 feet. Wow. Wow. So it, there is of, of the hundred. It's now the Badwater one thirty five. There's a hundred and thirty five mile ultra marathon. Yes, you heard me right. Nonstop. I mean, you can stop if you want, but the clock doesn't stop. And if you don't finish in under forty eight hours, you're disqualified. Wow. So I mean, just imagine it's, it's over five marathons in one hundred and twenty five degree heat with that kind of elevation change. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's it's. It's it's a microcosm for life is really what it is. <laughs> it's two days of, of euphoria and sadness and despair and just happy feelings and joy all condensed down into 48 hours. And I've run it. Uh, it's an invitation-only race. 100 people are invited from around the world. Last year's start line, there was 26 different countries represented in those 100 people. You have to have a resume built. I don't, I'm not talking about a you know a written resume, a running resume right. that you, you apply. And uh, the finish rate is about, uh, since the race was officially a race in 1987, the finish rate is about 80%. You got to be a pretty elite athlete. So it means 20% of these elite athletes don't make it. Right. I've tried nine times. I've failed three times. I've made it six times. Let's just start with what you were dealing with. I mean, psychologically, physically, what are the major challenges that that you faced and overcame? You know, the, you... The, to make this appealing to everybody who's listening, because not everybody's an ultramarathoner, it, it's a fascinating study in just the human mind, endurance of the, of the mind and body. But if you use bad water as I just defined it, as a metaphor for the insurmountable, the incomprehensible, and the impossible. I mean, just think about it. When I first heard about, I had never run a marathon, Scott, when I heard about Badwater. 
never even run a 26-mile race. I'd run a half marathon when I was like 16. I thought the thought of somebody running 135 miles in that heat, on that pavement, nonstop, I just, that's insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible. The three eyes I called. <laughs> when your bad water, whatever it may be, lays itself on your heart, like this bad water laid itself on my heart, I, when I learned about it and learned that other human beings can accomplish this, I mean, I was one step away from the couch as a couch potato. I mean, I ran my six miles and stuff, but I ain't no elite endurance athlete, I'll tell you that. My finish time is around 42 hours. The winners finish this in 24, sub 24. <laughs> so wow. you're just, they're just wow. gifted. It's beautiful yeah. to watch. They, they run by me, you know, at mile 42, and they had a four, I had a four-hour head start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, oh, so, so but, but, but for the oh, average man. listener, you, you, just, you have these insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible things laid themselves on your heart. You're going to probably say, oh, my God, that's impossible. I could never do that. If you're listening... Could you run 135 miles in 125 degree heat nonstop? The answer is no. Of course you can't. But could you run one mile, just one mile, and do that 135 times? Maybe. So my race, I I break it down into six smaller races. I hired a coach. I hired the best coach I could get the first year when I heard about the race in 04. I was at that start line in 05 after hiring this coach. And that coach transformed my mind far before she transformed my body that's what she worked on okay she got me ready to run a hundred mile race a qualifier a hundred mile qualifier race in six weeks six freaking weeks i went from nothing to running a hundred miles i was i mean day one i was in an ambulance i was literally taking the airport in an ambulance because i was so seized up day two i was in a wheelchair day three i had a walker day four i had a cane day five i was walking on my own but I wanted it so bad because I needed this qualifier on my resume that I, 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 she conditioned my mind to believe that I could finish a 100-mile race. And then eventually it's a 135-mile race. What, what made you want to do that? What, what was the primary driver that said, hey, I want to do this 135-mile race? You know, everybody has that, that insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible thing that lays itself on your heart. And most often we turn the other way because of the three eyes. Right, right. I was so intoxicated. I'm going to use words of fascinated. I was beyond fascinated. I was intoxicated by the thought of people actually can do this. And I bought, I bought a DVD, a, a documentary called Running on the Sun. And it was a documentary made in 99 about these, this race. And I watched it 50 times and watched and studied and just thought, if they can do that. And there were some people that, I mean, I'm very fit. I'm a fit-looking person. But there's some people that don't look that fit. So if they can do that, I could do that. Right. And I set it out to be the goal. You know, that was to close the loop. Let's get from the, from the time I heard about the race, which was an accident. I was vacationing in Death Valley. I went out for a six-mile run. I get done. I have heat stroke. My wife is, reco- you know, reviving me with cold water and towels. I go to the, the general store in the middle of Death Valley to buy Gatorade and bananas to resuscitate <laughs> myself. And the clerk starts yelling at me saying, you better get back out there. You're in last place. Now, I'm thinking I'm, like, hallucinating or delusional or having a heat stroke problem because why is he yelling at me to get back out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he thought... I happened to book my vacation during the time of the race. Okay. He thought, he thought I was in the race, and sure. I was way behind. You're going to miss the cutoff. And when he was, he was the one who said, you mean you're not in the Badwater race? What's the Badwater race? That's where it started. That's where it started. Wow. Wow. And a year to that day, 
Yeah. After I heard about it, I was at the start line in 05 as a participant, as a, as a you know, yeah. an invited participant in the Badwater Ultramarathon. Any more in the future for you? You know, I had a little heart issue um, that seems to rear itself after about 50 miles. It happened a couple times. So I, I mean, I, I've learned in this race, we actually had T-shirts made one year after I accomplished everything I wanted to do. Uh, this that, that basically said never say never because I say when I cross that finish line, my feet are X-rated because of the, the blisters. I mean, they, they've gone from a size 11 to a size 14. You know, the, the, just the, the, my eyes have rolled back oh, in my head man. before from from passing out and vomiting all over myself. It's a it's a it's a very grueling experience. It's brutal. Yeah. So when you get done, I say to my wife, you know, if I ever think about pushing the application send button again you stop me you tear that thing up but i'm the kind of person who if i was a woman i'd have 20 kids because i don't remember the pain of childbirth i don't remember the you know the crying beautiful baby at the end i don't i forget the pain and i remember how wonderful it is to cross that finish line so i don't i won't say never but you know it's it's another thing that i've kind of done i've done it nine times it's time to maybe find something new okay all right so you still run though oh yeah still yeah any strength training in, in yep. your equation? Yeah. So in my sport, it's, it's critical. Like my, my my pectoral muscles, my my um, my shoulders aren't necessarily that. My, my pecs are actually a wasted uh, muscle as a runner. It's, it's just too much weight. So I, there's specific training that I do for my lower body. Okay. Intense. And you wouldn't think this because these aren't little Ethiopian or Kenyan-looking runners. I mean, my my legs are oh, when I'm running are disproportionate to the, my upper body. My arms are really skinny. My legs, you know, from from you name the different leg exercise extensions, curls, abductors, adductors, squats, hack squats, presses. I do them all, and I'll do them. Uh, you know, like I, during my training schedule, I have a, a Monday will be a leg and core. Core is critical to running, of course, very critical. So I'll do a core leg, Tuesday run, Wednesday different parts of legs core, Thursday run, and again shorter runs, Friday off, Saturday maybe a thirty to fifty mile training run, Sunday I'm dead to the world, and Monday I'm back in there again. So at my age, recovery is training. How fast can I ret- recover and get back out there on that road? And and I'm getting better at that. Real quick, what do, what do you like to do for recovery specifically? Like any any recovery me- methods to uh, yeah. kind of? Yeah, I mean, I, I've gone, I've gone, and I've gone crazy on that. I mean, I, I sleep in a in a hypoxic tent, you know, a tent that simulates altitude. It creates my, helps my body create more blood red blood cells. I sleep in that at night. Slept in there for eight months. My, I'm married. <laughs> my wife didn't come in there with me. I mean, that's how dedicated I was. Wow. Uh, I, I have, there's, there's certain supplements. First endurance makes a really great supplement for, for runners, a recovery supplement that get, and, and even, you know, what helps during my long runs is me taking in seven to nine grams of protein every hour or else the muscles actually start to cannibalize, you know, themselves. And they, they most runners, most runners drink water. You know, so of course we're going to do the potassium, the magnesium, the sodium, and I have a very specific powdered mix that I make for my body. But then I add the protein to it, and I'll add after like two or three hours, I'll start taking seven to nine grams an hour. And if it's a super long run, I'll drink a recovery drink as if I'm done after 25 miles, and then go back out and do not go back out. I'll be out, maybe sit down for 10 minutes, let it take effect, and I'll and, and I'll get back. I'll drink the recovery drink, and then I'll get out there and run another 25. So if I'm kind of recovering almost as I'm running, I'm not running, you know, these seven minute miles like I'm running on my six mile runs. Of course I'm not. I'm more running like 10 to 12 minute miles, and it's a run walk, you know. So there got might it, be 
you know, maybe a lot of a lot of people do eight twos. You know, they'll run for eight 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 minutes, walk for two, eight two, eight two, eight two. So I, I try not to beat it up too hard so that my recovery time is a lot lot uh, shorter. Heavy in the night before, no carbo loading for me. It's protein loading. Yeah. Heavy protein load. What type of protein? Well, if it's not going to be the powdered kind, which I, you know, I like, I like the the um, Sun Warrior protein. I like the, you know, the vegan protein. It will be, and I did go vegan for a while, and it, it was great until I will tell you, it's great till like twenty or twenty two miles, and then my body wanted animal protein bad. Okay. okay. So I, I stayed vegan, but on my long runs on this Friday night before buffalo, you know, grass fed buffalo, just is. Ten, as dense a protein I could take, an animal protein I would take, and it yeah. made all the difference in the world. You found your you found your body needed that. Yes, the animal protein. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and then we're going to move into some rapid fire questions. Then we'll pull everything together here. But uh, the importance of mentorship or coaching. Um, so you you talked about having a coach for for bad water. Um, you've been kind of a mentor for me. Are there other examples for you in your life how you've had coaches and mentors and and how important is that for people to have the right coach and mentor mentorship and coaching uh and they're diff they're different a mentor like my mentor is an 88 year old man who founded amway he's like the 65th richest person in the world i don't say that to boast it's just that it's it's impressive that he's that wealthy he uh his name is rich devos any book any book written by Rich DeVos, I encourage you to buy and read. They're great reads. He's a self, he was a self-made person. He owns the Orlando Magic. He became my mentor before I started my charity. He helped me with that bringing together the spiritual and the professional highest calling. He really taught me how to do that and why it's important to do that. Why to whom much is entrusted, much is expected is a very important mantra to live by. And and that mentorship is more of a, you know, it's infrequent um, if it's one-on-one, it's great. But if I can get it out of his books, then he's mentoring me. Yeah. If I go to watch one of his speeches that he gives, which he's, again, 88, he's not doing too much of it now, but I will go even if I've heard the speech a hundred times. I want to see it again. Coaching is a little bit more, it's a little bit more contemporary. I mean, it's, it's between contemporaries. It's, um, you know, I, I think Yoda would be a mentor, right? Uh, he'd be more of a mentor where, you know, for me it would be – I'd be coached by a Donald Trump who's successful in real estate. You know, that's, yeah. that's more of a contemporary. So it's a little more specific, more yeah. tactical. Yes. Type. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering, do you have any maybe one big tip or piece of advice for people to find a mentor or Ask. coach? Ask. Ask. I mean, I get asked all the time, you know, will you, will you mentor me? And the answer is typically, you know, I have a coaching program, uh, and I don't do a lot of it just because I'm, you know, pretty busy. But and the money, you know, goes to our charity. If you're not willing to invest in yourself, you know, people want all this stuff for free. Yeah. If you don't want to invest much money, I have five books you can read. That is just as good as sitting in front of me. It really is. I mean, all, how do I get into my first real estate deal? I wrote a book called Burst This, Frank McKinney's Bubble-Proof Real Estate Strategies. Everything I know, 25 years in real estate, is in that book. I know nothing more than what's in that book. <laughs> so if you want to get into real estate and you don't want to yeah. be coached, then just read the book. Get the book. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. 30 bucks or 25 yeah. bucks. Yeah. It's simple. It, and, and, and what I try to do with people who can't afford it is if I sense that they're sincere and, they're, and I sense that they're willing to give back at some point in their life, I'll set aside maybe 10 to 12 Fridays a year for a couple hours and I'll sit with some, usually younger people, to okay. try to help them on their way, to answer by saying, yes, I will mentor you. Right. Um, but, but just ask. I mean, some of you look up to, if they've written a book, read it. 
Yeah. Definitely read it first. Right, right. And then approach them. And, and most of these guys have, and women, have coaching programs. And if, it's, if, they, if it speaks to you, pay for it. Yes. You know, how much yeah. is a semester at college, you know? Right, right. I mean, you yeah. can fast track your success for a fraction of the cost it would take you to go to college. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that all the time again on the show is, you know, you got to make the investment in yourself if you're really serious about getting results or achieving the goals that you want, you know, so you just... Uh, but I, I totally agree that uh, there's great books and great seminars you can go to, but there is something different about a one-on-one conversation. And maybe, maybe it's not, you know, everything that you covered, you know, all your success principles are in the book, but maybe that accountability and that you, you just feel something different by interacting the, with the best person. thing about the coaching that I like is is getting to know the essence of the individual. I can't do that if you're reading your book. Right. Like he, right. I'd like to take some of my philosophies, let's say in my real estate book, and if I gotta feel for your personality, well there's certain things I would that are in my book, I might suggest you don't do. It's just not cut out for you. Sure. And sure. that's the benefit of, of you know, you sitting in front of me, sensing your aura, your essence, and saying, okay, here's the things we got to, like Play-Doh, we got to modify and, and, and change to make sure that you're successful. Absolutely. All right, Frank, a couple of quick questions, and then um, one big question to, to wrap up. Uh, pretty much a standard question I usually ask on the show is, uh, what's a book that you recommend the most to others? Besides your book, of course, which is absolutely fantastic. I, actually, while you think about that one second, I, I do want to say that uh, Frank's book is obviously very impactful. And w- what I did is, you can see this, Frank, is, I have all of your 49 principles laminated, mm-hmm. uh, just the principles, not the, the content, but just the yep. principles. So by looking at the, the, the uh, chapter headlines, those principles, it just reinforces the learning from the book. And it, uh, there, there's so many good insights just by looking at this list. Uh, so I would highly recommend uh, people do. Oh, you have it as well. <laughs> That's awesome. I have. You're just saying. I told him. Hold on a second. I've got my own principles laminated that I carry around myself. Yeah. You know, smaller cards, I can put them in my pocket. Right. That'd probably be better. But uh, I have a journal where I have a couple things like this that are laminated, and I'll refer to them. And you know, you just pull out a couple of things, and it's just like you're maybe just think about those things for the day, and you're kind of set. It just set. sets the stage for the day sometimes. So you know, the, when you're um, learning. The other thing I would say, as, as, as Scott brought up a good point, okay, there's 49 success principles. Oh, that's overwhelming, Frank. That is so many. You know, I gave I gave this Make It Big event. It was a seminar. I went around the country giving it, and it was a, a seminar. No, no guest speakers. It was me for eight to ten hours a day, except for a lunch break, nonstop. And I said at the beginning of the event, I said, if you take three big picture ideas from this whole thing, not 49, but right. three, Absolutely. that's all I want you to focus on. Yep. It takes a lot of pressure off. You know, I got to remember all 49 of these. No, like you said, Definitely. I'll go to here and get one chapter and say, this is what I focus on today. Yes. Yeah. Awesome advice. All right. Going back to the book, maybe that you recommend to others. Yeah. Is, I, is I would, one? I would say that the, it would be more the author than, than the book. Cause, cause if you really like the author, the book doesn't matter. I've, again, I mentioned Rich DeVos's book. There's a wonderful, very little known philosopher, Anthony DeMello, a Anthony D E M E L L O. He's been passed away since like 1987. He is a, is a, is a philosopher. But, oh, my gosh, every book that he ever wrote, I've read, short, quick reads, they changed my life. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have behind my own books over here, I've got a library of of other books. Uh, Let me just see if I can 
pop over there and see what's back there. There's Rich's book. Oh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is a great marketing lesson. If you read it from a marketing perspective, you'll be a great marketer. Really? Uh, oh, heck yeah. <laughs> the Bible. Um, uh, Stephen Covey's book. You know, the... Um, I can't see the title from here, but Seven Habits. Yeah, Seven Habits was a big, a, yeah. a big one for me. Okay, all right, those are good books, for sure. Um, all right, question number two: If you had to say one word for this, uh, the secret to success in life is risk. Risk. Got to risk. Okay, I love it, man. What's the big advice you'd give yourself ten, twenty years ago? Risk more. Maybe expand on that a little bit. So is there is there a point where there's a kind of reckless risk? So I, I think what you're saying is be bold. Say yes more than no. How's that? I mean, really, we we are conditioned when when some when we're thinking about a, a an investment or we're thinking about a new business opportunity, thinking about a new project for me. There's so many reasons the subconscious bombards us with the no, why we shouldn't do this, and then. Now we're in the you know the the internet the internet of things age. We go and research it, and what you we over research things nowadays. We over spreadsheet and over Google things nowadays. You got to get back to intuition, not impulse. There's a big difference between impulse. Impulse is recklessness. Intuition is study and following your gut. And so I don't over research things because if you do that. Your, your subconscious is looking for a reason to validate why Uncle Pete told you it was a stupid idea, and you're going to come across an article that says it was a bad idea to get into you know strength training or get into real estate or whatever, and you're going to say, see, there it said, the, the internet said, the Google said, yeah. I shouldn't do this. Don't right, do that. Right. Follow your intuition. Okay. Risk. Don't let fear stop you. And, and, and don't, yeah, just don't over, overthink it. Last question in the uh, rapid fire segment, but uh, what do you, what would you say you're most grateful for in life? Awareness that leads to discernment. Uh, I know that's kind of foofy, but uh, I'm a very aware person. And if you have awareness, you can work on awareness. It leads you to be a very discerning individual. And if you're very discerning, you make wise decisions and that can lead to you know the right I've been married for 25 years, you know, I've been in the same house for 19 years, going to the same church for all these years. Uh, I've been on the same line of work for all these years. You know, discernment is a is a is a very hard to come by attribute I find nowadays. Okay. And and if you work on being aware, your discernment will follow, you'll make good decisions and I'm very grateful that I have those two things. Excellent. Where can people find you, connect with you, social media, website? The best thing to do, I mean, if you just don't remember anything else, just remember my name. If you Google it, up will probably come my website. We have a brand new website. I was really living in the dinosaur ages for a while. Just, you know, really, <laughs> my website was like 12 years old. It was terrible. Looks great now. Yeah, it's really good now. So you go, it's Frank hyphen McKinney. Make sure you have a dash between my first and last name. Frank hyphen McKinney. Frank hyphenmckinney.com there you can see the five books that I've written there's free chapters there you could read you can see the houses that we're building these beautiful mansions that we're building on the ocean you can see the villages that we're building over in Haiti you can see what our Caring House Project Foundation has done over there in the last 13 years it's a very entertaining site there's videos there and you don't have to spend a dime there and, and, and be entertained. That, that's what I would suggest that you do. Of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all that, but the, the website is, is a pretty interactive, fun place to be. 
If you could just briefly just talk about the Caring House Foundation before my final question, just uh, explain what that is for listeners, because I think that's really a fantastic thing. The Caring House Project Foundation is a very simple uh, foundation that builds these self-sufficient villages in Haiti. You know, we're on the 23rd in the last 13 years. Self-sufficient meaning we've got houses, we've got a school, we've got a clinic, we've got renewable food, clean drinking water, and some form of free enterprise all in a village-like setting for about four to 500 people. And uh, in business, you have an ROI, return on investment. I've coined the phrase ROD, return on donation. I'm very proud of how far we stretch our donor's dollar. So if you bought a book from me, the money doesn't go to me. A $25 book will provide 250 meals to one of our villages, two-part protein, one-part carbohydrate. So that's how we fund our villages. All my book sales, I decided many years ago, wow. go, go to our, our villages. I didn't know that. You can come to Haiti with me. If you've got a little bit more money, we take we take 50 to 60 donors every trip over to Haiti to see these villages. And you donate. I can build a house. Here, here do you want another return on donation? I can build a house, a concrete house for a family of 8 to 10 Haitians for $4,000. Wow. <laughs> that's the return that's on amazing. donation. Yeah. That's amazing. So please, while you're on the frank-mckinney.com website, there's a drop-down for the Caring House Project. Yes. Yeah. It's right there. You can read about it. Check that out. All right. So the uh, final question, Frank, is uh, what's the one big action? What's the one big takeaway that uh, every listener can take away and, and apply? Is there something you want them to remember out yeah. of all this that we covered today? I, I can, I'll do two if I can. Okay, but, sure. but one, we'll, 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 if, you, if you only remember one. Ask uh, motivation, motivation. Okay, so Scott's a big. He's very motivating in his book, and we all want to be motivated to look like him and train like him. Motivation, though, washes off in the shower and goes down the drain with the soap at night. So you should feel good about that. Why can't I stay motivated to exercise? Why can't I stay motivated to eat well? Why can't I stay motivated in my relationship? You know what? Because motivation was never meant to last. You should be relieved, people. That is a nice thing to know. I'm not motivated for much longer than a, you know, a day. You read a motivational quote. How quick does that wear off? Right. So motivation washes off, goes down the drain with a soap at night. Inspiration. I can read an inspirational book. I can watch an inspirational movie. Inspiration wears off like the effects of a bad sunburn. In other words, it lasts a little longer than motivation, but eventually it dissipates. Aspiration. Aspiration. Who do you aspire to emulate? What legacy do you aspire to leave behind? Aspiration will alter your DNA. It will forever change your life and the lives of those you love. If I step back and look what I aspired to, I've only aspired to a handful of things in my entire adult life. That's all. Yeah. And by aspiring to, I didn't motivate to them. Right. I didn't inspire right. to them. I aspired, aspired. Now, motivation and inspiration can ignite aspiration, but it ain't going to carry the day. You have to, who do I aspire to emulate? What legacy do I aspire to leave behind? Answer those questions for yourself, and then watch your DNA be changed. I wasn't a 135-mile runner. Yeah, I aspired to become one. I wasn't a five-time best-selling author. I aspired to become one. I wasn't a real estate artist building these houses on speculation for tens of millions of dollars. I aspired to become one. Yeah, the charity is the same thing. I aspired to run a charity, a big one with impact. Motivation would have never carried the day. Neither would inspiration, but aspiration will. We'll just leave it on that. We don't even know to go to the second one. That is a real. That is a late in life thing. I I realize, like almost a post mortem thing for me. Yeah, it's new. You haven't even heard me talk about it before. <laughs> it is 
it's so important that for people to to, to, to understand that, that, that it's okay for motivation to wear off. It's okay for you not to feel inspired after you watch something or read a book. Answer those questions. Who do you aspire to emulate? What legacy do you aspire to leave behind? What do you aspire to become? And when you can answer that, sit back and watch your, your old self change into your new self. I, I really, there's nothing I want to say there. I think that is so absolutely awesome. I hope that people can take that in and, um, really digest that and and take action with it and uh i just want to say what a pleasure this has been this has been absolutely fantastic first live interview session here and uh there's really no one else that i wanted to have to do it other than you frank mckinney so thank you so much thanks thanks everybody all right guys i'm going to wrap up here again i hope you really got a lot out of the interview with frank i know that i really really enjoyed that interview session and uh, it's great to have the first live interview under my belt And we'll be moving forward with more of those in the future. Next week, I do have a great interview coming your way. And it is not a live interview, but it is a great interview nonetheless. So I think you're going to definitely enjoy that. And we'll be back to the normal strength and uh, performance kind of talk next week. So stay tuned for that. Guys, if you're not a part of the Ardella Training community, please go to ardellatraining.com forward slash join. And you'll see all the great free stuff that I give away there. And I'd love for you to become part of the community and learn about all the great things that are going to be coming soon from Ardella Training. So that's a wrap for this week. I will see you next week on the Ardella Training Podcast. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ArdellaTraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.